This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Afternoon Show with Maud. It is 3 p.m. on Sunday, the 24th of April, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is student behavior in schools. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear listeners. So this is my fifth radio show as a hostess, and I'm delighted to share this new, exciting experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself to new listeners. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach both languages as well as humanities. I have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. So today I want to focus on one topic that is relevant to me as an educator and to all parents, all students, all SLT, and all teachers. This is a new topic that I'm exploring today in your company. This will be on the student behavior in schools. We will hopefully have a guest speaker who is a professional educator. First, I need to start with a definition. What is behavior? Well, behavior is defined as the way one person acts or conducts oneself especially towards other people. It is often a response to a particular situation or stimulus. Behavior cannot be managed separately from learning and well-being in the context of a school. So the context usually has some influence over the behavior of students. There are many reasons why people behave the way they do. It is often helpful to consider the payoff gained by challenging behavior or by supporting good positive behavior. For example, we might ask the questions, what needs does the student behavior fulfill? What strong negative emotions are being removed in the short term by the behavior? So why behavior is happening? Behavior always has to be understood as the way we communicate. It always has a purpose, whether it's bad behavior or good behavior. So behavior is also a way of getting needs met. Now, there are four sides to someone's behavior, and particularly to a child's behavior. As I said, behavior is a way to express oneself. But it's also a way of showing past trauma and present difficulties. Present difficulties. Behavior is also a cultural code, what is seemed 
what seems acceptable in one country might be deemed unacceptable in another country. I'll give you a very common occurrence. Eye contact. In many schools in the UK, when we speak to a student, when we address a student, we usually expect the student to look back at us, to make eye contact, because this shows a connection. Except we forget that in some cultures, making eye contact is seen as disrespectful. So you will have students who lower their gaze when we address them. So the, the fact that we insist on asking them to make eye contact can be very difficult for, for some students because it goes against what they've been told at home or what they've been used to at home. And also um, rem remind you about neurodivergent students who find eye contact extremely difficult to do. So this is just an example in our daily practice with our expectations about behavior. Now, the fourth way to describe behavior is as a personal and familial heritage and patrimony. What does it mean? It means that in some families, it is acceptable to negotiate or answer back or expect the, the child to be treated as an equal to the adult. Well, in other families, it might be completely different. So as a teacher, we have to deal with these four important sides of behavior on a daily basis. And this has to inform the way we teach. Now, I want to focus on one aspect of education, and that is inclusive education, because I think this is the one that we need to strive to achieve. And it's also the one that's advertised in all the publications from the Department of Education. We need to include everybody in our education. So the impact of teacher behavior is crucial. The way a teacher responds to a student can impact on the occurrence of the behavior. We're, we're all very much aware of this. If we focus on the why the behavior is happening and we allow the child to express oneself and then we meet the child's need, we're more likely to um, reduce bad behavior from happening. And when I say bad, I'm using inverted commas. If we focus only on the behavior and try to minimize it without thinking why it's happening, it's too short-sighted, and this is not gonna deal with the issue at stake. So the teacher always has to take into account why is the behavior happening, what can I do to help, and if it's a disruptive behavior, how can I prevent it from happening in the first place? Now, the question is, how much influence can a teacher have? And this is something I'm wondering still in my practice and that I discuss with my colleagues. Because what is the proportion of influence we can link to the school's ethos or the teacher's good example compared to family influence, peer pressure, and also local, communal, and um, societal issues? So a student's behavior is influenced by many, many things. I mentioned language and culture, but there's also the quality of the teacher, teacher-student relationship. If you know your students, if they know you have their backs, student behavior is always better. Now, as we see, it is a very difficult subject. When we say student behavior, we often simplify the issue too much. We think about good and bad. 
which is a very moral way to see the issue. I think we need to think about these four sides, the cultural, the expression of past trauma and present difficulties, but also societal and um, relationship. Now, I've had a look at all the teaching resources we have access to. And um, I find, and I had a discussion with an American teacher about it as well, it's a very centralized system here in the UK. We have a very clear hierarchy with Ofsted, DfE, and the government at the top. And then it trickles down through SLT and then it shimmers in very many different schools. But saying that, I think we all have to agree that most schools want the same sort of behavior from their students. So if you go from one school's website to the next, you're going to see very similar rules. I think we do have a centralized vision of the students' behavior in this country. And so my question is, if we all agree mostly on the same principles, how come behavior is so different depending on the school your child attends to? And how come we still haven't really got a recipe to share with new, new teachers in their training? So first, I had a look at the information available on the Department of Education website. Because, you know, this is who we should be looking for in terms of guidance. So there's three documents on the website. Behavior and Discipline in Schools, a guidance for head teachers and staff. Getting the Simple Things Right by Charlie Taylors with a behavior checklist. And then finally, a checklist for school leaders to support full opening behavior and attendance. And this last one was more uh, regarding the impact of COVID. So we do have access to a lot of very clear guidance on the term of student behavior and how to apply it. Now, I had a look at Charlie Taylor's biography because I wanted, I was curious to see who he was. So he's a chair of the Youth Justice Board for England and Wales. And um, he's also has a, a lot of um, work in the youth justice system in England. And I find it quite interesting to see that someone who has um, a lot of knowledge about the justice system was very much involved in the school policy review. I don't know what you think about that, but I thought that was quite telling. He's a former head teacher um, for the Willows, which is a school for children with complex behavior, emotional and so social difficulties. So he definitely knows his stuff. Now, Charlie Taylor had a look at all the head teachers who have schools with very challenging environment, uh, students who face a lot of hardship and yet have very good positive behavior. And what did he realize after doing this general analysis? He realized that schools that are successful in their student behavior are schools that look at consistency, which means applying the same rule all the time. The schools that were successful had very simple ideas on student behavior and student management, so simplicity. And then they also had a systematic reward and punishment system that they applied every day, every month, at all times. So basically, simplicity, consistency, and a simple 
reward and punishment system. So I think this is always very good advice to follow because this is uh, experimental, but it's also pragmatic. It's empirical knowledge. Schools that have a good positive behavior are schools which follow these principles. And then Charlie Taylor devised a checklist to follow. So I would advise any teacher in training to go and check that checklist because I think in my experience, it's a very good quality checklist. Um, there's information about classroom, pupils, teaching and parents with very clear guidance. And it seems like the perfect magic recipe to follow if we want a successful school. So now I'm just left wondering if the advice is so clearly written down, accessible, how come in practice we are still struggling so much with behavior in our schools? I think we, ha we are trying to make an attempt to rationalize behavior in a school. We try to have the same school policies in the whole of the nation. We agree on very common traits of our school policies, and yet we don't seem to be able to do it in practice. So maybe this is because we're not realizing that there's way more influence that is external outside of school. Why is it not working? Well, there's possible reasons. And I had a look uh, on Twitter. I always love reading what teachers say um, when they go back to school after Easter, just to see how they feel and how what, what struggles they share on Twitter or what are there, the positives they also share. So what I see on social media from other teachers is there is quite often a lack of support from senior leadership teams. So a lot of teachers feel like they don't have enough help dealing with the 30 students they're facing. Now, there's the common thread, which is teachers are overworked and tired. I don't need to do a whole lot of talking about that. And there's also sometimes a lack of help from the whole community. So it might be just some parents who don't seem to adhere to the school ethos or um, maybe the general infrastructure around the school that is making managing students' behavior difficult. Now, there's another one I would add to explain why it's so hard to follow the simple guidance that is on the Department for Education website. And this is, we forget the amount of trauma that some of our students are facing. And I think it's very important to really repeat it again and again, our students face rising levels of poverty with one out of three children in the UK living in poverty. Our students are facing COVID, which had a massive impact on well-being and mental health. And also our students are facing the pressure of social media that we did not have to endure as teachers when we were growing up ourselves, or maybe it was the beginning of the internet era, but we didn't have so much pressure on looking good or so much pressure on sharing about our inner well-being, which has an impact on our students. So this might explain why, despite very clear rules to have a good working relationship with our students, many, many schools are still struggling. Now, 
The UK, as I said, is a very centralized um, country with a very clear structure of power in schools. So discipline in schools relies on teachers' powers because we don't have a lot of examples of democratic school. I mean, we, we've got Summerhill, we've got a few other schools that are trying to have democratic principles in their organization. I found some examples in Paris and in other on the continent, in other places on the continent, but they are very underground, alternative, different schools. And I don't think their model could be reproduced in many, many other state school structures, because usually they're also private schools. So the normal UK structure is relying on giving some powers to teachers. And um, if you check the literature that is available on the Department for Education website, you're going to see that teachers have statutory authority to discipline pupils. So they do have power and it's given to all the paid staff in school. They have power to discipline the child by giving um, detention and they have power to um, confiscate pupils' property, which um, some parents disagree with and some students disagree with, but this is the legislation. Can I just have a look back at history and remind you that corporal punishment, for instance, were prohibited in uh, the United Kingdom in state schools in 1986, which is quite a long time ago now. Yet the prohibition was not extended to cover private schools. So we had to wait till 1998 in England and Wales to stop corporal punishment in private schools, 2000 in Scotland and 2003 in Northern Ireland. So it took a long time to get rid of corporal punishment, much longer than in other countries such as Scandinavian countries. And we still have a clauses on the legislation, which is about reasonable force. So this is a very difficult term to explain reasonable force. It means, according to the Department for Education, the broad range of actions used by most teachers at some point in their career that involves a degree of physical contact with pupils. So reasonable force means that if there is a fight in the playground or in your classroom, you can break the fight, you can place yourself in the middle and try and restrain the children if you think they are at risk of physical harm. It also means that you can hold back onto a child if the child is in distress and is about to hurt someone else or himself. And in very, very precise cases, it means that you can also restrain a child, but I don't think it would be happening in an ordinary state school. But it still is based on reasonable force. I don't know how you feel about that term, but I find it quite conflicting because it's not clear enough and it also could lead to a lot of misunderstandings. Are we going too far with these powers given to, to teachers? Well, um, you, you've heard of Child Q, the Child Q case. So this, is, um, this has just been reported in the media, but it happened in 2020 when a child in North London 
had to be um, searched by two female police officers who were called by a member of staff from the school, and she was searched in the premises. Now, if you look at the Department for Education legislation resource, it is a legal thing to do. Now, is it moral? Is it acceptable? That's a different discussion, but it is definitely allowed. If you want to search for prohibited items, such as knives and weapons, alcohol, illegal drugs, stolen items, tobacco, fireworks, pornographic images, and any article that has been likely to be used to commit an offense, the teacher has a right to ask to uh, check someone's possession without consent from the child. So I'm feeling a little bit conflicted on that one personally, because I completely understand that you would want to know if there's a knife in someone's bag in case you think someone could come to harm. However, searching for stolen items, which items? Could it be just an expensive phone or could it be, I don't know. I find it very, very difficult to maneuver this, this right that the teacher or SLT has. And um, I'd be curious to see what you think about this. Now, if we talk about the fact that we have a very clear guidance from uh, the Department for Education, and yet a lot of teachers who voice their, the difficulties they face on social media, in their daily working life, dealing with behavior, there is a discrepancy between the clear guidance and then the difficulty of applying it in real life. So, if we're pragmatic and empirical, we're going to look at what's working in schools. Well, then it's opening a can of worms because you have so many different visions of education that are very much in conflict with one another. You can learn a lot from it. There is a lot of famous behavior gurus. And I use the term guru. I'm not the only one, but I think it's very good to use that term guru because it's almost like belonging to a cult. You believe in one person's vision of education and uh, you just follow them, follow all their principles without always questioning what's the thinking and the power at play. So I'll give you a few famous names in the world of education. If you're an educator, you know about them. If you're a parent, you might not. So we have uh, the blogger and edupreneur Ross Morrison McGill, who's very active on Twitter. We have the England School Behaviour Tsar, chosen by the government, um, who is uh, also very active on Twitter, Tom Bennett. We have the American Dog Limov, who wrote a book, Teach Like a Champion, which sounds so American in its title. Um, we also have Dylan William, who is a British educationalist and uh, who is um, famous because he had a TV show that was set in one of my previous schools in Hertfordshire. And we have also the um, a very famous Catherine Birbal Singh, who is a head teacher of a school in Wembley. All these people have very different views on education and they have very clear guidance on how to deal with student behavior. They are gurus in the sense that they have followers and they also have people who are really upset at what they are professing or preaching. So there's a plethora of examples on what to do with your students in your school. If you wanted to buy a book 
that describes how to get good behavior from your students, you would be able to spend a th more than a thousand pounds. If you go on Amazon and check, you're going to see so many different books, self-help books, guidebooks, research books, so many on the subject of education and particularly student behavior. And yet we still haven't got anything that is reliable enough to give out to a teacher in training to help them in their daily practice. So what can we do? I want to look at the data now because I think an informed teacher is a teacher who can make big changes in his community, in his or her community. Now I looked at the extreme side of student behavior, which is students who end up being excluded. There's two forms of exclusion. There's internal exclusion and there's permanent exclusion. So internal exclusion is when a child has to stay outside of the classroom in a separate room. It can be called refocus room, restorative room, thinking room, exclusion room. Um, it can be for one day, a couple of hours, two days, three days, five days. And permanent exclusion is when the child has to leave the school and find a different one. Now, the rates um, do not reflect what has happened in the last two years. The only data I could access was from 2019-2020, and the figures are only for England, because that's where I'm teaching. So permanent exclusion rate is 0.06%. So this is very, very low. It's a number of 5,057 students. Now, suspension rate, which is when it's an internal ex exclusion and the child will come back to his school after a few days, is 3.76, which is 310,733. 7, 7, 7, no, My apologies. So this is not a general trend. It is a very rare. But however, we all know students who've been excluded. If you start teaching, you're going to meet a student who's going to end up excluded. So it is very small numbers, but it is still happening. Now, I wanted to know more. So I looked at the reasons why people were excluded. I did a brief Twitter poll just to see what teachers thought uh, was the reason, the cause behind exclusion. And a lot of them said it's physical violence. Well, when I looked at the data that's available online from the Department for Education, it tells a different story. Actually, most, the, the, the most important cause of exclusion is not violence, it is repeated disruption. So persistent disruptive behavior over a long period. And when we see the figures, in 2014, we had 1,899 students excluded for persistent disruptive behavior. And it's down in 2019, 2020 to 1,744. So it's declining, which is always a positive side. Now, apparently since COVID happened, there's been less exclusion. So hopefully that figure will go down. As a reminder, 34% of exclusions are due to that persistent disruptive behavior. So not violence, not drugs, but persistent disruptive behavior. 
So if we explore the data, we realize that there is a general decrease of exclusion and there is a majority caused or expelled because of persistent disruptive behavior. Now, the only worrying trend I really noticed is that there's a rise of exclusion in primary school. And you would think that because these children are younger and more vulnerable, and that it's really important for them to stay in their local school with their friends and, and the, the people they know in their community, uh, a rise in exclusion in primary school is actually a very worrying trend. So I think we should um, definitely keep an eye on that statistics. Now, the sad reality of exclusion, and this is in the context of including, inclusive education, as I mentioned earlier, the sad reality is when you look at who is excluded, because then education doesn't seem so inclusive at all. If you look at statistics, the number of people who are excluded is a majority of boys. You might think that it's not surprising, but it's definitely three quarters of excluded kids are boys. Now, there is a higher rate of children who are on free school meal. And that's when the, the gender the difference was quite understandable, but the issue of poverty gets into our uh, subject, our topic of the day. You're more likely to be excluded if you are on free school meal. And also, a lot of ch children who are excluded happen to have special educational needs. So they are very vulnerable students. They suffer from poverty and they also have educational needs. And if you look at ethnicity, then that's a very, a very dark painting that you get from this uh, analysis of exclusion, because you're more likely to find an Irish traveler child being excluded, or a gypsy or Roma pupil, or a mixed white and black Caribbean child than any other ethnicity. So there's definitely a bias with poverty, educational needs, and race. So not so inclusive our education. So you're going to tell me, um, that's a pretty depressing picture. We realize that the number of exclusion is going down. However, it's rising in primary. The sort of students who is expelled is a child who is vulnerable on many, many levels. So an exclusion is definitely a failure, not of schools, I would say. I would argue it's a failure of society to take care of its most vulnerable members. So our schools are not offering an inclusive education to our children, to all our children, if the ones who are expelled are usually ones who have a lot of difficulties already in their lives to deal with. Now, what can we do as an educator to change this? Because this is, this is what this podcast is about. We want to change our education. We want an inclusive education. We want positive behavior for all our students. And we want teachers who enjoy teaching and who feel like their work is appreciated. 
Um, so we know that it is important to look at peer pressure, to deal, uh, to nip in the bud when there's disruptive behavior. There is um, a study by David Ferguson, Joseph Bowden, and Harleen Hain, who are um, from um, Christchurch. And they say that the nature and quality of the young person's peer relationships play an important role in shaping behavior. Peer influence is particularly important during adolescence. So we have a lot of work to do as far as teachers are concerned when we need to uh, show a good example because the impact we're going to have is less than the other children around uh, the student. Inclusive education is definitely an answer to the issue of exclusion in education. Now, there's a big movement to promote inclusive education and any educator should have a look at these websites. There's one that's quite good with a lot of resources and it's called Trauma-Informed Education. Now, this has been developed because of the rates of exclusion that are still rising in primary school, as I mentioned earlier. And it comes from the deep desire, the deep-rooted desire of teachers to make a difference. They really want to lower the rate of exclusion because they think it's a failure of the system from taking care of its young. So the uh, policies with zero tolerance are might be the cause of a rise in um, exclusion but i think it's it's definitely more complicated than that so there has been a lot of work and a lot of resources available to help you in promoting an inclusive education so tips strategies um first i am from the continent being a french person and i always find it very difficult culturally to understand this very big part that uniform takes into um, student behavior management in UK schools. So I'm, I'm really trying hard to understand it, but I think, I think you, need to be, you need to be born in this country to really um, understand why it is so important. My issue with uniform is, I mean, per personally as a parent, I know it's very handy. I have two children in two different schools. One has a uniform, one doesn't. And I know the benefits of uniforms. I know it's it's easy to choose in the morning because there's no choice. You just have to put your uniform on. And um, it, um, it does look good. I, I like, I enjoy seeing all my students in their lovely little red jackets looking very neat with their ties. I do see the appeal. It's a bit of a nostalgia, I find, but that's only my personal take on it. Now, my issue, um, as I say, as a continental um, citizen, is that I see students who really struggle with uniform wearing. And I'm talking about, for instance, some neurodivergent students who really have an issue with the fabric, the quality of the material. They find it itchy. I can tell they are not happy in their own skin when they have a uniform. And I know parents who chose schools on the basis of the fact that they didn't impose a uniform because they had a child who is on the autistic spectrum and they wanted their child to have a freedom in choosing the right clothes to feel good. So I have a bit of an issue with the importance of uniform. 
in general in student management and behavior. Now, my other issue is because we forget about trauma. And I'll give you an example. I noticed that a lot of my students in my current school who have suffered from very difficult childhood with very traumatic experiences, they usually have a need for covering themselves. So they would always try to keep their jackets on indoors. Uh, even playing and running outside, I noticed some students who have their hood on, they have their jackets zipped, even if the sun is really hot and everybody's without a, a, a jacket, they, they always cover themselves. And it's a sign of trauma. You can see it in, in the street when you see a, a homeless person who, who wears layers and layers of clothing. This is a human response to um, a deep-rooted feeling of insecurity. And the, the need for safety is translated in behavior as a need for covering. So I'm in, as a teacher, I'm asked by my senior le leadership team to always ask the students to remove their jacket when they come into the building. And I know that it's very difficult for these students who suffer from trauma. So I wish we could find a solution. Now, my solution would be to allow them to have a comfort blanket. So it might be a comfort blanket with the color of the school we go to. So if it's a red and blue or yellow and gray or just with the, the school logo, but just to allow these students who have that need to be able to wrap themselves in that blanket. Because if it's a need, why are we fighting against it using the school uniform policy? I, I really think there's um, a debate here to have on that um, trauma-informed education. Now, another thing we can use as a strategy when we want to improve the student behavior is to adapt the timetable. And I think COVID has had a good influence in some schools because it made SLT a little bit more positive into adapting the timetable. I've heard that from some of my colleagues. They actually have the opportunity to make a timetable that reflects teenagers' needs. Remember, primary school children wake up very early and are bright and sharp and ready for learning early. Teenagers um, have a different biological uh, need and they need to sleep longer in the morning. So this is another thing I love about my current school is that the older students in KS4 start the day later. And I think it does have a massive impact on their behavior. They can come to school at nine o'clock, which means that for some local students who live very close to the school, they can wake up at 8.20 in the morning. It makes a very big difference to have that extra hour for sleeping in the morning. Now, another strategy we could discuss or we could put in place to support our students' behavior is allowing more choices and options. Because I am a humanity teacher, but also a language teacher. And I can't tell you how often I've met students who told me, Miss, I didn't want to study Spanish. I wanted to study French or vice versa. I wanted to study French and I was put in a Spanish class. I think it's really, really important to follow the children's 
instinct. If you have an interest for Spanish culture, you should be able to choose your language and, and not be assigned because it makes it easier to do a timetable. I really think we need to put the children's interest first before any other timetabling issues. It works more for motivation. Motivated students are going to have less issues with um, behavior. Now, um, I think most parents would agree with me that smaller structures are appealing. We would all want our students or our children to have 18 students per classroom. And I'm sure a lot of teachers would like that as well. I do think smaller structures are helping with student behavior. Now, I've been told that in research, it hadn't been proven. I think we should, we should do another uh, research themed on small structures because it can't be right to have 30 students in a language class or in a DT class. How can you give your attention to 30 people in an hour if it's, it's almost impossible? I know about differentiation and I know we can do a lot, but let's be honest, if you want to speak a language, you can't do that in less than a minute per hour. And it's, it's almost impossible to speak for more than a minute for 30 students in one lesson. Now, another thing I've read about, in um, there's a school in Glasgow on an estate that tried a new way of working with inclusion, inclusive education, and they created a home-like environment for um, some of the students who needed it. Now, that's a very old idea. There was an Italian um, education thinker in the 19th century who had already created a school that looked like a home environment. It was called La Casa. Now, I think it's essential that every school in the UK starts developing a, a home-like unit for the students who didn't have the chance to have a home life because we all have students who had very difficult traumatic childhood. And if school can offer them a space where they get to try out how it feels to be welcome in a safe space, a warm space where there might be a member of staff who is a bit older and who is there, not particularly a teaching member of staff, just someone who's there, a little bit like a house mother in some boarding school settings where it's someone who's there who can make you a cup of tea and give you a biscuit and let you release all that pent-up tension, I think it would do wonders. And it's been trialed um, in many places already, an inclusive unit where the student feels there, there might be a couch, there might be a little kitchen area, just something to, to let our stressed students release that tension. And I'm sure you know of some of your students who would benefit from that home-like environment. We could call it La Casa in honor of that female educationalist from the 19th century in Italy. Just imagine a house mother who is full-time in that, in that space where the children who need a little bit more love because they're, they're not nurtured at home, they could get it at school. Another contentious, advice or strategy we could put in place if we wanted to really make sure student behavior is increasingly better in UK schools is the removal of exam pressure 
for our most vulnerable students. So I know it's a conflicting decision, but could we just consider, I have a few students I know are too traumatized to actually have the mind space to learn an academic subject, let alone any subjects for that matter. I'm, I'm thinking of a particular student who is an adorable child, but he just, he really has a difficult home life and he can't sit still, he can't stay in the classroom, he has that urge to walk and wander off. I think removal the pre removing the pressure of exam from him would help because he's not likely to get a, a, a GCSE. He's, he's really struggling, but yet he could just be at school to socialize, to get to learn a way of interacting with others. And for him, it would be an immense achievement because it's something he needs to work on a lot. So I think to insist on him attending um, a French lesson or, or a physics lesson where he can't actually just take a pen and, and even hold it properly, I think it's just too much pressure. And I think it's detrimental. I think we're actually quite neglectful when we, we insist on putting our students in that same mold, whereas they, it doesn't fit. So you might have a very different view on this. I'd be curious to hear that. Uh, remember, you can always use the chat function if you want to share your thoughts uh, with us. So these ideas, I'm just going to summarize what we mentioned. Strategies to improve student behavior. Allowing freedom from the very strict uniform. Adapting timetable for the students who need it, following their biological needs. Allowing more choices in the curriculum and in the subjects. Allowing a flexibility in timetabling. Tabling. Advocating for more budget to spend on smaller structures with a limit of 18 students per classroom. Creating a home-like environment unit for the students who need just to have a safe space when they go to school. And removing exam pressure for students who just need to be at school to learn to socialize and behave with others first. These were the tips and strategies for a general re rethinking of our schools. Now, I want to focus on another side of the issue of student behavior, and it is teacher well-being. Yes, because let's be honest, everything you experience in your work life has an impact on your well-being. If you're a doctor and you get a patient who is abusive, you're going to take that baggage home. If you're a bus driver and you get thrown abuse at by people bored onto your bus, you're going to take that home with you. If you're a teacher and you you get very, very disruptive students, they might not be rude. They might just not be interested in your subject and talk over you for a whole lesson. It might be okay if it's appeared five on a Friday once in a while, but if it's every day, every period, it's gonna drag you down. 
And we know that we have a big issue with teachers leaving the profession. So, teacher well-being. The NASUWT, which is a trade union, did a survey in 2021, well-being at work. And it was uh, from mid-December to early January 2022. So that's quite fresh data. Now, the survey asked 11,857 teachers to respond by email. And in the survey, it said that teacher well-being was affected about pupil behavior, by pupil behavior. But it was only 24% of the teachers who said that their well-being was affected by pupil behavior, which is relatively low. Now, this is one survey. I don't know if you have many teachers as colleagues or friends, but they might say that they're tired and that they're overworked. Are they talking about student behavior? Has it got an influence on how they feel in the morning? Does it, does it make it difficult for them to think long-term in staying in the profession? The impact of student behavior on teacher well-being is often unreported. We could ask the question, why is that? Well, it might be because it reflects badly on a teacher. If you start telling a colleague or your line manager that you're struggling with dealing with your students, it might reflect on your skills as a teacher. It might reflect badly on your professionalism. You might be offered advice, but you might also be seen as someone who is not up to the task. So this might explain why many teachers do not mention student behavior or dealing with behavior as an issue causing them difficulties with their mental health. Now, the cumulative impact of dealing with frequent disruption in a classroom can be demoralizing and exhausting. It can distract from teaching and interrupts learning for the other students. Sadly, in other surveys, there is a completely different figure rising. In a poll by TeachWire, so if you want to check it out, it's www.teachwire.net, there's a poll that says, 62% of teachers in the poll said they are currently or have previously considered leaving the profession because of poor pupil behavior. Now, that's a very different result from the trade union survey. Now, why is it a different result? Well, we all know how subjective surveys can be. However, we should always remember that teacher workload is not just preparing lessons, not just marking books, but it's also having the extra energy to be on it once we are delivering our lesson facing our students. And if you're a little bit under the weather, or if you're already tired because you marked till 11.30, or you had parents have evening till 10.30 the night before, it might be just that bit harder to keep your cool when you get interrupted by a student who is well-meaning, but might also be sometimes overconfident 
and slightly rude. So I think we always need to take into account the fact that if teachers are leaving the profession, student behavior definitely also has an impact. It can't just be lesson preparation. Behavior, as we said, is a means to communicate. We can't expect children to always behave in a positive and constructive way. Most of us, our parents, as well as teachers, we know how children are at home and at the workplace. We know that the compounded effects of poverty, mental illnesses, diagnosed or undiagnosed, stress, anxiety, difficult family situation, and also racism and discrimination have an impact on our students' behavior. The question is, how can we affect the roots of the issue rather than just how we see the issue operating in our classroom? I am interested as an educator in reducing the amount of poverty in my country because I see the effect of poverty in my classroom. I have students who can't afford new shoes, so their shoes are too small, so they can't walk properly. I have students who can't afford a new jacket, so their jacket is damaged and shabby looking. Poverty affects them on an appearance level, but also on a physical level. What does it do to your feet if your shoes are too small? I really think we need to have um, discussion on poverty in the UK. I've had my first pod podcast that I invite you to listen to was about poverty, but poverty influences student behavior. There is a correlation. So we can't change student behavior unless we reduce poverty. This is not just a teacher's job. This is a community's job. This is a voter's job. We're going to vote on the 5th of May. I voted today because I vote for the French presidential elections. I encourage any educators who's worried about student behavior to vote thinking on how can we reduce the number of children in poverty in our country. Because if we reduce the number of children in poverty, we will have children who behave way better in schools because they won't be worried about eating or about having shoes that are too small, they will be focused on their learning if they have less worries at home. Heating your home, eating healthy, nutritious food is what makes children able to learn. And if these needs aren't met, academic learning is not going to solve anything. So another issue about student behavior is teacher training. How was your teacher training experience regarding student behavior? Well, I'm one of the lucky few who had two different types of teacher training. I had teacher training in France and I had teacher training in the UK. And while I can say that the French, the, the lecture on how to deal with student behavior, it started naturally by uh, etymology. We love etymology in France. I'm guilty of that as well. And um, authority comes from potestas in Latin, and it's an inner power. It's an inner strength, and it's not really something you can get. It's something you're born with. So obviously, 
again open to debate, but we've all met people, even people who are very small of stature, tiny people with such power, such charisma, such presence that they had absolutely no problem with being authoritative or having authority. We've all met people like that. Now, if that was possible to bottle potestas and sell it, I would be selling it on um, the internet. However, there's no such thing as a magic potion. So even if authority is innate in many individuals, the lucky few, we can do something to help our teachers in training. So in England, my teacher training for student behavior, we had a famous, one of these um, student management gurus who came to our university and um, he, it was a he, told us about his experience as a new teacher and then how he developed his practice. There was some very good advice. Can I just remind you, it's the same advice more or less as on the Department for Education website with that checklist. So my issue that I had at the time was that teaching is a feminized profession. We have a lot of female teachers and yet there is nothing about how to teach when you are a woman because it's very different from teaching as a male teacher. Uh, male teachers have uh, usually um, careers that go, um, they can get positions in SLT way faster than their female counterparts and they end up being paid more quite quickly. The uh, gender gap is still present in the teaching profession as well. So I would like something um, coming from one of these um, student behavior gurus about the gender gap in authority as well. How do you navigate authority as a young female teacher when you're in your early 20s? It's a big, big question. And there was an article in The Guardian that I invite you to read about uh, sexual harassment in the workplace for female teachers. This is an issue that is not mentioned in teacher training. And we are not equipped as female teachers on how to deal with sexual harassment from colleagues or from students. And I think this is uh, like the elephant in the room. We're kind of forgetting that presenting yourself in a classroom, you are obviously a teacher, but you have all that baggage that society puts on you. We can call it intersectionality if you want. You're just a figure of authority, yes, but you also come with your representation. And if you're a woman, you are, by definition, someone who's going to be paid less, 15% less at times, and uh, you're someone who's got less power. So this is definitely an issue that we need to address as far as behavior is concerned. How to support female staff in a difficult position? Um, I'd love to hear from you about it. Please use the chat. Now, teacher training is also very theoretical. You remember that checklist I mentioned, but what about the practical side? Well, we're usually just thrown in the deep end. And in my first placement, which wasn't so long ago in 2019, before COVID, um, we were just given a class after observing for two weeks. And it was 
really hard. And even though you follow all the rules, you have your achievement reward system, your detention rewards or your detention system, or you follow the rule, you're consistent, and yet it doesn't work. Well, a lot, there's a lot to say about creating and forming a bond with your students. But when you're just there for a month and a half, it's really tricky. So my thoughts are going to all the teachers in training. We've been there. The advice, uh, unless you have um, that inner potestas, I would say you need to really have the luck to be in a school that supports you. And that's one thing that I recommend is whenever you go for a job interview, ask SLT how they deal with behavior. Is there a detention system in place? Do you have to organize a detention as a teacher? Is there someone else who can have your back? This is how you're going to see if your school is going to be supportive. I think this is time now to listen to our news. So I'm gonna let you have a listen and I'll be back in eight minutes. Thank you, dear listeners. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers 
and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Multiple media outlets report on comments made by Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi in a Times Radio interview. In the interview, Mr Zahawi dismissed calls to ban smacking of children by parents in England. In Wales, following the introduction of the Children, Abolition of Defence of Reasonable Punishment Act, parents who tap a toddler on the behind risk arrest and a criminal record. Children's Commissioner Rachel D'Souza expressed admiration for the ban in Wales and stated she would be supportive if the government in England decided to do the same. In response to Dame Rachel's comments, Mr Zahawi told Times Radio, My very strong view is that actually we have got to trust parents on this and parents being able to discipline their children is something that they should be entitled to do. He went on to outline how his wife had occasionally disciplined their nine-year-old daughter with a light smack on the arm. While some groups have come out in support of what they call the Education Secretary's common sense approach, others have condemned his comments as out of touch. Earlier this week, Mr Zahawi also sparked discussion following comments reported in The Telegraph, which outlined his views that schools have a duty to inform parents if their child identifies as transgender. The comments prompted a wealth of concerns about the safeguarding implications of such an act. His comments on smacking are likely to lead to similar concerns. Following last month's publication of the safeguarding report on the case of Child Q, a number of local authorities have received freedom of information requests for details on strip searches carried out in their area. Data is being requested following the release of details about the searching of Child Q, who was taken out of an exam and strip search by two female officers while teachers waited outside. The Now Then magazine for Sheffield reports that South Yorkshire Police have received FOI requests as a result of the Child Q case. The case raised a number of questions around safeguarding, duty of care and the treatment of young people of colour by both police and schools. In the Channel Islands of Jersey, mask wearing and the need to work in classroom bubbles will be scrapped from Monday the 25th of April, according to ITV News. Government data suggests there has been a decrease in the number of cases on island. However, there is also a warning that measures could return if the cases escalate. Other measures such as enhanced hygiene and increased ventilation will remain in place. In Africa, the news website This Day reports on the launch of the Africa Education Medal, which recognises the work of educators in transforming education across the continent. It is aimed at telling the stories of those who have lit the spark of change and is open to all individuals working to improve the sector from pre-kindergarten to university education. The medal is launched by T4 Education in collaboration with HP and Intel. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, and with zero extra cost, using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. It calls to me. 
Dear listeners, we're back after the news. It was quite interesting to hear that in Wales they're going to try and ban smacking children um, uh, for, from parents. Very interesting points uh, raised by this about behavior management from the family side. Right, so sadly I can't see my guest on the Podbean app, so I'm just going to read you the answers that some teachers have sent me online. So we have first Matt, who volunteered to do an interview with me. He couldn't come and speak to us today because it's Sunday and he has a little baby to take care of. So I'm just going to read out Matt's answers for us today. So how long has Matt been working in education? Matt has been working for nine years in three different schools. His main responsibilities are subject lead for French, curriculum planning, data, liaising with other departments, and extracurricular activity for the whole school. What is Matt's understanding of students' behavior? So Matt explained to me that what matters is getting to know the students, building positive relationships, being consistent, open dialogue with parents, the use of genuine praise as well. And in terms of negative behavior, Matt says, inconsistency, lack of support from SLT and systems in place, the time of the day and the weather as well have an effect on the students. Um, Matt has said he has experience um, having students being excluded. And he also said that he was told about the last permanent exclusion it was serious, it was linked to something outside school as well, but he did not have a say in any of the process of the exclusion. Although he said that in case of internal isolation, sometimes he's asked his opinion. He said he had access to data about children's behavior in his, in his school using SIMS. Lots of educators in the UK are familiar with it. And he also said, that to the question does your school offer specific training about how to support children with behavior issues he said yes he has cpd which is training for an hour and a half each term and uh, he had um, um, external speaker coming on the issue of therapeutic thinking and he said he was really happy he attended um, training on the specific topic of suicide prevention he said it was very tough hitting but very useful as well so we can see that uk schools are really providing training as far as matt's experience is concerned so now we have also his view on student behavior affecting his teaching matt said low level chatting can have a neg negative impact um, and when uh, student behavior escalates it takes a lot of time to resettle the whole class. Saying that, he thinks that he has improved in dealing with students' behavior since he started teaching. He noticed that um, the classes are a bit, needs a bit more of hands-on approach after February half term when the options have been selected. So here it's the motivation depending on the subject that is at play. I asked Matt, how does student behavior affect your, you personally? And Matt said, sometimes it used to affect me, but over time I've managed to separate it. 
And he also said that he could talk to his partner about what happens, and that is very helpful. Um, I asked Matt if he had heard of trauma-led teaching. Matt said yes. He has received training on therapeutic thinking, for example. And uh, he said his partner was also trained in attachment and trauma, and he can discuss it at home with his partner. So he found it very useful. So that was for Matt's interview. Now I had another educator who volunteered answering my questions, and uh, her name is Lily. So Lily has a different background from Matt. Lily has worked in education for four years. She is also a French uh, citizen. She worked, um, she studied at the Centre International d'Études Pédagogiques, uh, which is now France Educational International. And uh, she also has experience working at university in the USA. She did her PGC in MFL in 2020, and she's been teaching languages in a secondary school. So Lily says, from my perspective, positive behavior is enabled by multiple factors, parenting, absence or challenging of bullying, good relationships with teachers, teacher praise, and appropriate levels of cognitive challenge, as well as boundary setting. Lily says, negative behavior seems to be influenced by the home context, unadapted resources, um, and peer pressure. Lily says she has experienced meeting students who were temporarily or permanently excluded at her school. She said she was not informed of the reason why they were temporarily or permanently excluded, and she's unsure about the process. She also said she did not have a say in whether a child is excluded or not. I asked Lily if she got training offered by her school, and Lily said she got training available on how to support students. She also has a behavior mentor who can sit and observe lessons or support specific students. She says students' behavior heavily influences her teaching. The most common issue she encounters is low-level disruption. She means students talking during independent activities, not respecting countdowns, silent countdowns, talking over her when she's expressing something. And Lily has also said she often has to interrupt her lessons to address these issues. On the other hand, Lily says students are settled and focused, um, and they can learn better. And occasionally she has to deal with more challenging behavior. So I asked Lily the same question as Matt. And I said, Lily, how does it affect you personally? So Lily said, I tried to not let students behavior affect me, but there are times where it's difficult, especially when it gets personal, as when students issue threats, shout at me or slam doors, push chairs violently, talk back using disrespectful words or make personal attacks on my health issues. Overall, she says, it does tend to affect me. So this is quite an important testimony from Lily. It does have an impact on her. And um, I think it's something we need to look at, particularly in how to support young teachers such as Lily. And also, as I mentioned earlier, female teachers 
Lily says, I do believe behaviour is a matter of safeguarding, as very often there is an underlying cause to the behaviour and a change of behaviour can be a sign of abuse, neglect or else. So this is when we mention the aspects of behaviour as, as a sign of trauma when it's disruptive. Um, Lily said she'd never heard of trauma-led teaching in her school. And uh, when I asked her what was the impact of COVID on her experience, she said she wasn't teaching during COVID. I mean, COVID's still going on, but I guess she, she means during the lockdowns. And um, she says, the only reported change I've heard from colleagues is that students' maturity levels have decreased and that many act in manners that would be expected from younger students. So this is an interesting point, and I have to say I heard it from colleagues too. Uh, maybe maturity comes by socializing more, and as our students were more at home, they didn't get so many opportunities to interact with their peers and thus stayed maybe in their in their level of development a bit too long and now we need to make them grow up but there's no pressure either so um i would like to think about what matt and lily said exactly so if we look back on what matt said matt said that it was maybe a bit difficult at the beginning but that he quickly learned how to deal with students behavior and he also said that what matters is having support from SLT and from parents. Lily seems to have a bit of a difficult experience with children being physically, you know, pushing chairs and, and, and being abusive at times. And uh, I think we need to pay attention to young teachers who are telling us that and offer them more support because we need our teachers to stay in a profession. And we don't want them to to suffer in their well-being and then make a decision to leave the profession because they are trained, they're willing to do the job, they're passionate about their job and they just need a little bit more support to get to that level, that stage where they, you know, they're separated from work and then family life and then they can really uh, grow into their role as a teacher. So I think we need to pay more attention to the teachers and also respect their voices, just the way we respect our students' voices. Now, if we want to summarize the strategies that I mentioned earlier in the, in the discussion, I really think we need to look at trauma-informed education. We need to allow our students who had a tough childhood to find the skills they need in their own time. And if it's not, subject specific, if it's more about socializing and interacting and learning to behave in society, well, let's focus on that first. Being flexible as a structure. An institution only matters because of the people who are part of it. So having a flexible timetable, a flexible choice of options, smaller structures, respecting the child's biological development Offering a home-like unit for the children who don't have a proper home. And removing exam pressure for the students 
who are struggling under stress, children who don't have enough to eat, children who are cold because heating bills are increasing. It's, I think it's a matter of emergency actually, to really put the child at the center of the structure that's supposed to teach them something. We need informed education, we need trauma-informed education, and we need an inclusive education that doesn't expel the students who are from a certain ethnicity, mostly boys as well, as we saw in the statistics, and also those with special needs. It's a matter of structure. If the structure is too rigid, it can't protect the students. So we really need to work on the structure of our schools. It was a delight to talk to you today. I really, really want to thank the listeners. Please share the podcast link to your friends if you've enjoyed it. And um, I look forward to preparing a new session for next Sunday. Have a lovely Sunday. May the sunshine stay. Thank you, dear listener. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.